Now, will you take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 13? Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 20 and verse 21. I want to consider with you tonight the eternal covenant, the eternal covenant. This is an introduction, so... Uh, there's so much in these two verses for us to think on. So I will read 20 and 21 of Hebrews 13. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Now, at the heart of these two verses, I think we can say, uh, without exception, is what we call the gospel. The gospel is in these verses right here. It talks about the great shepherd of the sheep, talks about the blood of the covenant, uh, talks about the sheep and so on, talks about us being equipped with everything good to do that which God requires and to Him, to Jesus alone, be all the glory and all the praise. So these verses uh, are really at the end, uh, as we know, of this great letter and they bring together everything that the writer to the Hebrews has been saying concerning the purposes of God in His Son, in our Lord Jesus Christ. And this good news, this gospel that we believe that we confess contains everything that we need for this life as we know and for the life that is to come we are being prepared in fact to be equipped ready for every good work is the work that is done by us and in us and through us now and it is because or on the basis of an eternal covenant that is achieved through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ or brought, brings about the death of the Lord Jesus Christ who is called this great shepherd of the sheep. If ever there were two verses in the Bible that are so thoroughly God-centered and Christ-exalting, it would be these two verses. Because here we find what God has done. We look into the purposes of God. <clears throat> God's eternal purposes are made known to us and revealed to us as we find in these verses. So we are reminded in the first instance about the purposes of God what God has planned, what God has done. And it is, according to this verse, an eternal purpose. God is not, uh, as we have said so many times, taken by surprise in time by the things that happen. And on the basis of what happens in time, in history, he changes his mind or uh, has to adapt his thinking, his plans, and so on. No. All of future, all contingencies, all things open to God, seen clearly by Him, not just open and seen by Him, but determined by Him, decreed by Him, written by Him uh, in His decrees, if I can put it like that. And this eternal purpose that is made outside of time is accomplished in time and has consequences that last again outside of time in eternity to come. And I say it's an eternal purpose because look at the text, right? It talks about the eternal covenant, the eternal covenant. I say in time also because notice the text, Jesus has been brought again 
from the dead. And that took place 2,000 years ago. So God has done something before 2,000 years ago, before creation, before time began in what is called an eternal covenant. And as a result of that eternal covenant and what was decided or determined within that covenant, the ultimate proof of that is that Jesus is brought again from the dead in time, in history for us. But having said that, above all things, what we should see in this passage is that Jesus' rising from the dead is the consequence of the decisions of the, the Godhead, of between God and Father. And certainly the word covenant, as we have seen so often, I think, among ourselves, conveys this idea of purpose. God has a purpose. God's purposes involve God's obligation that he fulfills his word, that he keeps his promises. His promises are based on what he has decreed, what he has made, that he will fulfill his word, and God always does that because God can never be untrue to his character, to his nature. And what we can also say, by way of introduction also to this verse, is that verse 21, which is the practical application of what is said in the doctrinal section of verse 20, is so intricately and intimately tied to the purposes of God, to this plan of God. Or to put it another way, God has bound himself by a decree in an eternal covenant that is revolving around the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is not just his death applied or given for us, but is guaranteed and certainly to be of such a redemptive quality that Jesus had to be raised from the dead. That is on the basis, on the basis of that we are equipped with everything good to do the will of God in time. So the will of God is not something arbitrary. The will of God is not something uh, that you have to struggle to understand or to find. It is clear in the Bible what God's will is for us. We are to be an obedient people. We are to be a holy people. We are to be a righteous and a godly people, but we can only be that if we are born again, born of the Spirit, if we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. How did that believing in the Lord Jesus come about? came about because of this eternal covenant that is saturated, if I can put it like that, with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and is guaranteed to us by the fact that Jesus is raised from the dead. So it is God who equips us, and it is God who works in us, and as verse 21 ends, to the glory of God. In other words, your daily life, the things you do, the things you say, should be always and only for God's glory. Not only these, but these broad points that I've been just touching on when you look at the text and read it, but there is a depth, isn't there, to verse 20 and 21 that is profound. That the idea that in time I am equipped to do certain things is based on an eternal covenant is very, very deep. In fact, it's almost unfathomable to try and grasp and to understand what the writer to the Hebrews in his mind thinks about when he goes back and talks about this blood of the eternal covenant. So we must not approach then verse 20 and verse 21, I think in this casual, in this flippant manner or this quick way. No, there is much food for the soul here. I've always liked the idea, you know, I tell Chris this often, that, that uh, our meals should be like the Middle Ages, you know, where you sit down at a table and it lasts all day, right? 
You know, there's just a, a, a chunk of meat put in front of you. You eat the chunk of meat and you move on to the next course and that lasts all day. I really like that idea. That's how I try to think when it comes to the Word of God. That here is a verse and I'm, I must take my time. I must chew over it. I must digest it and then chew over some more of it and go through it again and again. So a casual, on-the-surface kind of reading or meditating is not what we require. What we need really is time and effort so that we are not lazy. But we spend time going over again and again and again. What is God saying to us in his word and there's so much of his word that we have before us that we can look at and we can understand for us for our good there's so much food for the soul here so we don't want to be like uh, stampeding cattle right to get a smell of the water and then just charge headlong into the water and are gorge themselves and then it's all over for the cattle. No, we don't want to charge your head like that. Now I know when I come to these verses that with my eyes in my Bible I can see verse 25. The finish line is right there. Okay, I can smell it and uh, I'm, I know that's where I'm going to the end and the end ends with grace, doesn't it? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I know that you're thinking that too, that you can sense we're getting near the end. That's true. But look what the writer does just before he closes off this, uh, this great epistle. He just launches into some very deep territory to hold us up for a bit that we might think again and again and again about this Jesus Christ and this God, Jesus himself, who is superior to everyone and to all things and to the God who has orchestrated and brought about his purposes for his glory and for our good. He equips us with everything good to do and accomplish his will. So, I sense verse 25, but I'm in no rush to get to verse 25, just so you know, all right? But because there's so much here for my own soul, and I believe for all of us as a church. No, these verses are like a sumptuous feast, rich, tasty, and worth our while to spend time considering them. One of the things I always like about Martin Lloyd-Jones is that when he preached, he was always uh, fixated on the words, and they mean something. Well, why are those words there? What do they mean? And I think that's true. Uh, we should, as we read our Bibles, ask ourselves those kinds of questions. Why does God say that? And why does he say it that way? And what does that mean for me? So notice we have in this passage God, right? He is said to be the God of peace. And what does that mean? And why, by the way, does the author, having never said anything about God being the God of peace, suddenly talk about the God of peace in this verse? And notice in this verse also, it is that God, the God of peace, who is said to have raised Jesus, his son, from the dead. And why is that important? So we have to think about that, right? And notice that it was Jesus who was raised from the dead, and he is called our Lord Jesus. Why our Lord Jesus Christ? And notice particularly that the Lord Jesus, our Lord Jesus, is called the Great Shepherd. And if you are a shepherd, you have what? You have sheep. And it says right here, the Great Shepherd of the sheep. So he has sheep. And notice that he then talks about, or gives us this phrase, by the blood. And all of these are said to be of the eternal covenant. 
So you can see just by looking at these words and phrases that there's great depth to what the writer to the Hebrews is bringing here. And after all that he says in verse 20, he then talks about verse 21, about what we should do and why we should do it. So I want to consider uh, these verses with you as we come to these, verse 20 and 21. First thing you should notice, it's a benediction, right? And what is a benediction? A benediction is an invocation of blessing. A benediction is a pronouncement of that which is good or that which is beneficial. So he is making a pronouncement, a declaration about Jesus, about God, that is of benefit to us. And ultimately, benedictions are uh, taken up, like at the end of the verse, with the glory of God. That you pronounce this blessing so that God receives all the praise and all the glory. And, of course, these verses are right at the end of this epistle to the Hebrews. They form the conclusion. The little verses afterwards, 22, 23, 24, 25, are a kind of postscript that just wind up and conclude the letter. But this is what he really is focusing on as he gets to the end of this epistle. He wants to pronounce or make this pronouncement about something that is beneficial and something that is good for us. Now, all benedictions, all of them, I think without exception, have great dangers associated with them. It's not the benediction itself, and it's not the content of what is pronounced or the benediction, but your use of the benediction. That is where the great danger comes in. I think that's true of all of our reading of Scripture. It is of great benefit because it is Scripture. It is God's holy word. We recognize that. When we start to use it and apply it, then we do find that we have difficulties and we have uh, strange ideas coming out and so on. So it's not because it's a benediction that it's a problem. And it's not because of the content of what verse 20 and 21 has, but because of how you might use it that you might find that there are problems. It can become something, I think, that is formal. And something that is ritualistic. For instance, every Sunday morning I pronounce a benediction. May the love of God and the grace of the Lord Jesus and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us. I find myself, because I know those words mechanically and simply, and there they are, and I don't really have to think about them, that I force myself to think what I'm saying. That in the pronouncing of that benediction, I am thinking about what I'm saying because I don't want it to be cold and mechanical from my point of view. I want to feel and to believe what I am saying when I say, now may the love of God and the grace of the Lord Jesus and the fellowship of uh, the Spirit be ours. Whether it's today and always or until Jesus comes, I want to feel that and I want to feel that for myself. So whenever I pronounce the benediction, you should uh, know that that's the kind of stuff I'm wrestling with. Do I believe this? Do I feel this? It's rich and it's warm and it affects me and it ought to affect me so that I can communicate it not in a mechanical, cold, formal way, but in a real living way. That's what benedictions should do for us. They should not be formal, should not be mechanical, but they should be rich and warm and alive because of the words. And words, as you know, are easy to say. And anybody can say and use words, but it's what words mean that really count, right? So sometimes you say things with words, you haven't thought about what they mean, and they affect other people because other people interpret them 
as you mean whatever you don't think you mean. And that's when we get into all kinds of trouble among ourselves and so on. So we must guard ourselves against uh, mere repetition or rote dictation when we ever come to understanding these things. So we have to think about that. Not only is a benediction, this as a benediction, but it's written as a blessing to the to the Hebrew Christians, and by extension is written as a blessing to us because of everything within it. Everything within it is so good. And so the specific details are important. And those details summarize, I think, the entire theological doctrinal content that the writer to the Hebrews has been trying to make in this great letter. I want you to notice that this benediction centers on the activity of God in and through our Lord Jesus Christ, who is described as, notice, in terms of a relationship, right? He is the great shepherd of the sheep. Not he's going to become the great shepherd of the sheep. Not that the sheep are going to become sheep somehow by believing. No, they don't. They don't sheep don't become sheep because they believe sheep are sheep because they're lost. And right, so, so here is this relationship. He is the great shepherd of the sheep. So in terms of relationship, that's what you see here. But notice in terms of redemption, right, because it is by the blood of the eternal covenant. And when we say the blood of the eternal covenant, we mean the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that the eternal covenant is about redemption. And that's why we often, as I'm going to say a little bit later, talk about the covenant of redemption, the eternal covenant of redemption. That's what the writer to the Hebrews is telling us here, that you have this element not only of relationship, he's the shepherd of the sheep, but this element of redemption, that it is by the blood of the eternal covenant, that the sheep are recovered and found and saved. And finally, you'll notice the the whole thing is connected to the resurrection of Jesus. So it's not just about relationship and it's not just about redemption, but it centers in the bringing again from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, our Lord Jesus Christ. So resurrection is crucial. I also want you to notice that God's eternal purpose includes God's people. I've already mentioned that. We are called sheep, right? And this details every believer's relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are all sheep. And there's not better sheep than other sheep, right? Sheep are sheep, right? And there's a reason why we are called sheep, because we're lost, we go astray. Each of us, all of us have gone astray. We've done our own thing, gone our own way. And so Jesus is described as, the, in the Bible, the good shepherd and the great shepherd and the chief shepherd. Shepherd of the sheep, shepherd of his people, people uh, his, his children are called sheep. And because he's a shepherd, he acts as a good shepherd does, as a great shepherd does. He cares for the sheep. He is not like the false shepherds of the Old Testament prophets who do their own thing like Zechariah talks about. No, we are his sheep, he is our shepherd, and that defines an intimate relationship between Christ and and his bride between Jesus and his church. And notice that that relationship is defined, stipulated by a covenant. A covenant that is said to be eternal. So that the blood of the eternal covenant is the securing, the application, the outworking of a decree made between the Father and the Son to achieve a certain purpose, a purpose we call redemption. 
the saving of the sheep by the great shepherd of the sheep, our Lord Jesus Christ. If ever there were, was a verse that let you into the heart and the mind of God, it's this verse. If ever there was a verse that opened up what, what the Father and the Son have been concerned about from all eternity, it's this verse. The salvation, the saving of the sheep of the Lord Jesus Christ. Saved by Him, by His blood, the blood of the eternal covenant. And that makes it so relevant and important to us, this covenant relationship. And this relationship, of course, is secured and sealed by redemption, by the blood of the shepherd. And that Redemption, that work of the Lord Jesus at the cross, brings you and brings me into a vital living union, which we might call relationship, that we now enjoy as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And union with Christ can never be dissolved, can never be broken, can never be dismantled and, or whatever you like. It, it cannot be destroyed. It is eternal. It is secure. It is forever. Because God the Father and God the Son and of course God the Holy Spirit made a determination to secure redemption of these people. These people's sheep. And how would they do it? The great shepherd would do it. He would find them. He would recover them. He would save them. And to prove that he can do it, he rises from the dead. And it's all by determination of the eternal counsels of God. So at the heart of any covenant, as I've said so often, Sunday school and, uh, and on other occasions, at the heart of a covenant is a relationship between God and himself. And of course, in biblical covenants, which we're concerned about when we read our Bible, it's a relationship that is expressed as a union, like a marriage, a binding together of parties, and that marriage or that union that it binds us together is all rooted in God and the character and the nature of God, the Word of God, the promises of God, and likewise with our Lord Jesus Christ. And a union in this way usually expresses itself in good terms. And that's why we have this benediction, verse 20. Notice it. Now may the God of peace. So God is called the God of peace. You notice that the peace part, the God of peace, leads naturally into the very next word in verse 20. Now may the God of peace who? Who? That God of peace has done something. He has brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ according or by or through the blood of the eternal covenant, which is part of that covenant because it's redemptive in its accomplishment. So he is the God of peace simply because he's done something. Verse 20 is brought Jesus again from the dead. Now you know it's interesting when we talk about a covenant and we talk about relationship and we talk about peace because that word peace of course uh, really does deal with the aspects of relationship, right? I mean think about any relationship you have with anybody else. It's either peaceful or not peaceful. Generally speaking, broadly speaking, on speaking terms, not on speaking terms, comfortable, not comfortable, or whatever you want to use with it, hating, loving, uh, it's, there's, no, there's no real middle ground because peace, peace speaks about a relationship that is working, a relationship that is enduring, a relationship that continues. This is the relationship that God has with us and, of course, with his Son. And peace exists between both parties. They both know it. 
Now don't forget that everything said here in verse 20 and verse 21 is held together by what the writer calls eternal covenant. Everything is held together and it is the consequence of it. And it is on the basis of this eternal covenant, so therefore, whatever God decided and determined, on the basis of that, that Jesus is raised from the dead, on the basis of that, that Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep, and on the basis of that, that God is the God of peace. Because he has determined and decreed that this is the case. So when the, the Bible uses eternal, I think the King James, New King James, uses the word everlasting. When it uses this term eternal, and in the sense that it's used here, in the sense of the covenant, we understand that to mean that this is ongoing. That there is no end. That this is something that has begun and continues and never ends. It is an eternal covenant. And it was made in eternity past, but all of the application of it is in time, and the fruit and accomplishment of it is in glory that is to come. So that we will always be reminded that God made an eternal covenant between himself and his Son to bring about our redemption so that when we fall down with our crowns and worship him, it's because he redeemed us, because he's our shepherd, and he saved his sheep from their sins. And so we call this, that's why I said earlier, the covenant of redemption. It supersedes, precedes every other covenant, right? So whether it's the Adamic or covenant of works that God made in the garden with Adam, or whether it's the covenant he made with Noah, or the covenant that he made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, or makes with Israel, or makes with David, leading up to the new covenant, which consumes all of those, the new covenant itself, grounded in, of course, the eternal decree of God, the eternal covenant of redemption, that all of those historical covenants are because of this one decision, this one compact between the Father and His Son, between God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, yes, the parties of the covenant. So when we start any consideration in the Bible, we should always start with God. That's what the benediction does do, right? Now may the God of peace, who did something, do something for us. And that's verse 21. So can he do verse 21? Can he equip me? with everything good according to his will. Can God actually do that in my life? Well, if he can bring Jesus again from the dead, then he certainly can do anything like that to equip me in verse 21. So it's right, I think, to start with God, the God of peace. And this designation, by the way, the God of peace, is, is a New Testament designation. I want to show you some of those. So will you turn with me to Romans chapter 15? Romans chapter 15. And look at verse 33. Romans chapter 15 and verse 33. Just a simple verse. End of chapter 15. Romans chapter 15, 33. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. How's that for a conclusion? Right? That's how Paul sees it. May the God of peace be with the Romans. Look at chapter 16 and verse 20. Now to, to him, sorry, have I got my words right here? No, I don't want to go to verse 20, chapter 16. Turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. 
Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, chapter 4, verse 9. So, uh, we should think on whatever is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and if there's anything excellent and so on, anything worthy of praise, we should think about those things. So, Philippians 4, verse 9, Paul says, What you have learned and what you have received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. God of peace will be with you. I like that, by the way, because it tells me that the God of peace, peace to me, peace in my heart, peace in my mind, is because of how I'm thinking about Him. Whatever is good, whatever is noble, whatever is right, and so on. Think about these things. First uh, Thessalonians, First Thessalonians, chapter five, verse twenty-three. First Thessalonians, chapter five, verse twenty-three. Chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians, verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see what Paul even himself thinks about God and the accomplishments that are from God. May the God of peace do those things. So here, in these verses that I've shown you, the Apostle Paul prays for his audiences, prays for these churches, these Christians, prays God's blessing upon them, which originates for him as, and being found in God, as the God of peace. So what does the writer to the Hebrews mean when he uses this description? Or makes this introduction like this? He could have said, right, he could have said, now may God... He could have said that. Now may God do this. But he doesn't say that. He says now may the God of peace. I think it's unlikely that the writer to the Hebrews uses that term to mean that there should be the promotion of peace or harmony among us, among the Hebrews. That's not what I think he means when he talks about the God of peace, that, that there should be this harmony and peace uh, between them. It is true in this very chapter, in verse 1, he's told them that Christian love should continue, and in verse 2, he has told them that Christian hospitality ought to be demonstrated. He has told them those kinds of things. Or, as verse 5 puts it, to be a content people. At verse 7, 17, to be an obedient people to leaders in the church. And being content and being obedient or submissive reveals peace in the mind and in the heart. I don't think that's what the writer to the Hebrews means when he talks about the God of peace. Nor is he urging peace upon them or among them because of their sufferings and their persecutions and their tribulations and afflictions. I mean, isn't it a wonderful gift in the time of trouble to actually be at peace? And it is God who supplies peace for those occasions and for those times. But I don't think that's what he means here, the writer to the Hebrews. What I think he wants us to see is that the achievements of this eternal covenant that God has made reveals God to us in a particular way. That he is this God of peace and all these achievements of the eternal covenant are at the heart of the gospel. And what do I mean by that? A relationship restored between God and His sheep or God and His people, secured by the redemption of the Lord Jesus Christ, guaranteed and sealed by the fact that Jesus is alive from the dead, raised from the dead. That's the element of peace 
that God has done for us. He is the author of peace in giving to us this peace that comes to us in the gospel. The gospel is essentially a gospel of peace, a restored relationship between God and offended sinners or offending sinners. There is no gospel without resurrection. There is no gospel without redemption. And if there's no resurrection and there's no redemption, there's no relationship in terms of the gospel. And if that's true, then there is no such thing as peace between ourselves and God or from God to us. No, the one thing we do know about the gospel is that it brings peace to us, peace from the God of peace. It comes from God. So when Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, is proclaiming about the relationship between his son who has been born, John, and about the future deliverer that is coming, it's always in terms of this gospel and peace as a result of it. In fact, when the angels proclaim at the birth of Jesus to the shepherds, it's peace on earth. What kind of peace is that? It's a peace from God, because God is the God of peace, a restored relationship to God. So this gospel peace is established by God and is achieved by Jesus shedding His blood for us. So the Apostle Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Notice that reconciliation, to reconcile all things to him, is made by the blood of his cross, results in peace. And isn't reconciliation... Peaceful relationship, right? So Colossians 1.21 goes on to say, We were once alienated from God, but Colossians 1.22 says, Now we are reconciled to Him. And that's by the blood of the great shepherd of the sheep. And so our relationship to God is now a reconciled relationship. And so the gospel brings us peace, and our reconciliation to God and with God is only through the redemption of Jesus. This is why the, the, the gospel or the redemption, the shedding of the blood of the Lord Jesus is so precious to us. It's at the heart of what we have confessed and believed. I have been redeemed, I have been saved by the blood of the Lamb. I have been washed clean. Uh, if you'll turn back also now to Ephesians chapter 2, let me show you some more. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. Verse 13 of Ephesians 2, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So how are these Gentile Colossians brought near to God by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ? Verse 14, For He Himself, that's Christ, is our peace, who has made us both one, that's Jew and Gentile, and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Notice the language, right? Hostility, made peace, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile, verse 16, us both to God in one body through the cross. Notice the blood 
the death of Jesus and through that thereby killing the hostility and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father where does all of this redemptive work this achieving of peace go to? to the Father to reconciliation with God and now may the God of peace that's why he says it, because this is what the writer to the Hebrews is thinking. So this is peace, right, in Ephesians 2, in the deepest sense, in the fullest sense, in the real sense. Peace with God, because God is the God of peace first in and of himself. We could also say that at the head, at the fountainhead of this eternal covenant involving the Father, involving the Son, is the achieving of our being reconciled to the Father through the redemption of the Son. That's what this eternal covenant is about. The relationship between father and son to achieve a relationship or a recovered relationship, a reconciled relationship between the sheep and God. And it's Jesus who does it by his blood and by his resurrection, by his redemption and resurrection. That's why we call it the covenant of redemption. Some call it the covenant of grace. Certainly grace conveys those kinds of ideas too. Some call it, and I like this, the Council of Peace. And they call it the Council of Peace because Zechariah 6 verse 13 says that it is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. So the promise of some ruler coming to sit on his throne in his temple and there shall be a priest on his throne so now we discover that the king on his throne is actually a priest and the council of peace shall be between them both. That between these offices there is peace between them both. So this eternal covenant in verse 20 of Hebrews chapter 13, dear beloved, we call it pactum salutis, the covenant of salvation. Because that's what it's about. Isn't that what re redemption is? Salvation by the blood of the Lamb. So the covenant of redemption is the obtaining of reconciliation with God. That's why he is called at the head of it, the, now may the God of peace. And, it is, and we are reconciled to him. And who are we? We are said to be the sheep. The sheep of the great shepherd. How are we reconciled? By what the great shepherd does. What does he do? He dies. Sheds his blood. And he achieves redemption for us. And on the basis of the blood of Jesus shed for you and for me, God accepts us. Because the price is paid. The price of redemption, ransom, has been paid. And to satisfy God or to prove that God has achieved that, he raised Jesus from the dead. So Jesus' triumph over death is life from the dead, out from among the dead, for you, for me that I might be redeemed, that I might be reconciled to God. Isn't this the gospel? Reconciliation with God. What is the gospel? It's grace and it's peace, as we said this morning. So it was the God of peace who, the writer says, did this. So you can see that the gospel is not something that God suddenly came up with in Genesis 3.15. 
No, the gospel is at the heart of the purposes of God, the redemptive activity of God. Now look what the, this covenant is all about. I mean, there's nothing in that covenant that talks about, about all the things in the future, about all eschatology. There's nothing in that except glory at the end. Nothing. What is in this covenant at the heart of it is how God saves us. How God actually brings about our redemption. So what is it on the heart and in the mind of God, the Father and God the Son, as they make this eternal decree, what is at the center of it? It is you and it is me. Now I can't get my mind around that, that in the councils of eternity, in a determined compact covenant, that God determined to save me because he loved me, because I'm the sheep and you're the sheep. And how are we going to do that? Jesus is the great shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, who sacrifices himself, who gives himself. And when he does that, he achieves peace. And peace from God comes to us because of what they determined, the Father and the Son. And you know, when I think like that, it seems to me that's proof enough as far as I'm concerned for the great subjects of predestination and foreordination and election. I don't need anything more. When I think about those opening lines, now may the God of peace who did this through the blood of the eternal covenant brought again from the dead our great shepherd of the sheep, our Lord Jesus Christ. When I think about that, when I'm taken up with that, that's proof enough to me that the doctrine of predestination and foreknowledge and foreordination and election is true without exception, without debate. In fact, election is simply the determination ultimately to redeem the sheep of the shepherd, right? Because the sheep are chosen by the Father and the sheep are given to the Son. It's very important to understand this, right? So let's see what, what does Jesus say about that. So will you turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 6. I mean, what does Jesus think and say about these kinds of things? Verse 37, John chapter 6. Precious verses to us, I think. So John 6 verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me. Why will they come? Because they are given. Right? So all that the Father gives me, the Son, they will come to me. And whoever comes to me, Jesus says, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven. Now this is how I accomplish that. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. What is the will of him who sent me? Surely it's to redeem those that the Father has given. To save them. To keep them. To secure them. And verse 39, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Even as we can say from Hebrews 13, Jesus is raised from the dead so that his sheep will be raised from the dead. I love those verses. Now go to chapter 10, John chapter 10, verse 27. So John chapter 10, verse 27. John 10, 27. My sheep, notice who they are, mine, right? My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them, my sheep, eternal life, and they, my sheep, will never perish, 
and no one will snatch them, my sheep, out of my hand. What do you have? I have eternal life. I can never perish, and nobody can take that away. I can never be snatched from that out of the Father's hand or Jesus' hand. Notice verse 29. My Father, who has given them, who has given the sheep, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them, my sheep, out of the Father's hand. So I'm in the Father's hand, and I'm in the Son's hand. How is that possible? Because the Father gave those sheep to His Son. And the Father loved those sheep, and the Son loved those sheep. I and the Father are one. But the tragedy of this statement, surrounding these statements, is if you look at verse 25 and 26, Jesus says to the Jews, I told you, verse 25, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Now notice, they can't make themselves sheep. They can't decide, oh, we'll believe, and then become sheep. No, the sheep believe. They do not believe and become sheep. The sheep believe. Because who does Jesus die for? He dies for sheep. And what are these sheep? They're lost, and they're perishing, and He comes to save them. (coughs) So, At the heart of this eternal covenant is the purpose of God to save us. And what kind of salvation is it? Is it gone today, here today, gone tomorrow? No. Nobody can take them out of my hand, Jesus says. Nobody can take them out of my Father's hand safe. For how long? Eternally safe. I give them eternal life. They know me, I know them, they follow me, they hear my voice, they are mine. The Father who gave them to me is greater than all. No one can take them out of His hand. I and the Father are one. So, that's the heart of the eternal covenant. The sheep, saved by the shepherd, reconciled back to God who is described now as the God of peace, who has achieved this. So we see then, do we not, what the gospel really is? What is it that I am believing? What is it that I am confident in? I'm confident in this God and this Lord Jesus Christ, this great shepherd of the sheep, because he saves his sheep. And they can never perish. And they can never be lost. And it's not some nice news that you just need to hear today. It's not, this can give you a better life. This is not designed to motivate you per se, psychologically. No. This is designed to show you what it cost the Father and the Son. It cost the Father his Son. And it cost the Son his life to save you and to save me. What a glorious redemption. Right? What a great salvation. And it's not the prosperity uh, and the promise of prosperity, is it? There's nothing about prosperity here. In fact, the only thing for us here is to do the good works that the Father has ordained that we should do, to equip us to do them on the basis of what He has determined between Father and Son. So it is the promise of really a blood-bought union, isn't it? 
between shepherd and sheep that reconciles us to God. Sheep are lost. The sheep cannot find themselves. They do not find themselves. No, they are found by their shepherd. He lays down his life for them. He saves them because he can save them. And he secures them when he saves them. And when he does that, we are reconciled back to God who started it all in eternity, in an eternal covenant of redemption. We are knit together, you and Jesus, Jesus and us. You see how good God is to you, right? He brings about your peace through this gospel that resides in a determination from outside of time. How great God is. You see that? He brings Jesus back from the dead to achieve it, to secure it, to guarantee it. And he did it all so that here and now, as verse 21 puts it, you are equipped. You are equipped with everything good to do what God's will is. And it's God, the God of peace, who works in you, who works in me, all to the glory of his beloved Son, the great shepherd of the sheep. The Thomas Brooks, the Puritan, said that the covenant of grace is the Christian's original title to heaven. What God determined in the past, in eternity, is so that you get to heaven. What a gospel. What a salvation. What a shepherd of the sheep. Let's pray together. Dear Father in heaven, thank you so much for this word that we read about here in Hebrews chapter 13. The God of peace who through or by the blood of the eternal covenant has brought again from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, our Lord Jesus Christ, so that he might equip us with everything good, so that we might do his will to the glory of Jesus forever and ever. That gives us purpose, Father, tonight, to live out tomorrow and every day the will of God for the glory of Christ, all because you saved us by grace. Thank you for this gospel of peace. Thank you for this salvation promised to us. Thank you for sending, Father, your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to save us. Thank you for the peace that is achieved through the gospel as it comes to us and we receive it and believe it. Thank you that you have given us to your Son and we are secure and safe forever for, eternal, for eternity. Thank you for the gift of eternal life to those who believe. Thank you for this good news, the gospel of peace and grace that has come to us. And now, Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for your Son. Thank you that we've been able to worship you in this place. And now we pray that as we go out into the world, as we face our jobs tomorrow, that you would help us in our daily work, that you would be with us, that we might be able to think about these things and sustain ourselves through the week on the depth of them, so that we come again on the Lord's day to worship and to please you and to glorify you. Help us, we pray, each one to walk in your ways, to do the works you have called us to do, to please you according to your will. Thank you for the great shepherd of the sheep risen from the dead, our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has reconciled us to yourself. Thank you for the peace that we have between you and us because of what Christ has done. So we praise you and we worship for these glorious truths that we have considered tonight. And send us forth, we pray, into the world to bring you glory. 
We ask all of these things now as we part one from another with thanksgiving, and we pray it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. May the Lord bless you and give you a good week.